You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT Advisory Council President, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking today with Ollie faculty member Jim Bays, retired corporate attorney who has taught courses on Thomas Jefferson and the transition from the Articles of Confederation to the U.S. Constitution. He is a graduate of two very distinguished schools, Dartmouth College and the University University of Virginia Law School. Welcome, Jim. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Appreciate that. Now, as a graduate of the esteemed University of Virginia Law School, I can understand why you have a strong affinity to Thomas Jefferson. What did lead you as a corporate attorney toward a strong interest in the early history of the United States? Well, I certainly was interested in Thomas Jefferson uh, because of my time in in law school uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. They had a, if you were a resident of the Charlottesville, Virginia, you could go to Monticello anytime for free. Every time someone came into Charlottesville to visit, it would be a trip to Monticello. And so I've probably been to Monticello 20, 25 times. And uh, the wonderful thing is that every time I, I, I go, I learn something new. because The docents there are just fantastic. How I got interested in this area, it actually was sort of uh, serendipitous. One of the wonderful things about being retired is that you have time, time to do things. And, and I spend a lot of time reading. And one day I stumbled on a book entitled Framing a Legend, which was a rather vicious attack on the recent scholarship about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. The foreword to the book really savaged the work of another scholar, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, who had written a book about the uh, Sally Hemings-Thomas uh, Jefferson relationship. And I think the thing that really annoyed this historian who wrote this forward to the book was the fact that she had won a Pulitzer Prize, and, and he obviously never won one. <laughs> and he, 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 he was vicious, and the book was, I thought, rather uh, thin in its, in its logic. So I decided to, to pick up the book that Annette Gordon-Reed had, had written. She'd actually written two, so I read those two. Got very interested in Thomas Jefferson, started reading about John Meacham's biography of Thomas Jefferson, and then almost anything I could get my hands on about Thomas Jefferson, and became just became very interested. And along the way, I noticed that there were a lot of very interesting characters in the pre-colonial, post-colonial days, like John Adams and George Washington and so on. So I started reading about them as well. And so all of that culminated in uh, continuing interest in, in that, that period of time. They all seem to have such interesting stories in their own right. 
they do, and some of the characters are really amazing. One that I, I love is, is Governor Morris. His, his name was Governor, which was not Governor. It was his mother's maiden name was Governor, uh, and he was uh, a randy sort of guy. He was one-legged. He, he lost his leg ostensibly in a carriage accident, but the story was that it was really jumping out the second floor window when he was having a tryst with a, uh -oh. a married woman, and apparently he enjoyed married women and enjoyed uh, encounters in public places with married women. So people like that were just, you know, they're just, uh, he was also a, a, one of the senior finance people in the early American government. So people like that are just very interesting. Are you on any certain bent right now? Has anyone sort of tickled your fancy, as they say? Well, I, I've just started reading Walter Isaacson's biography of Ben Franklin. Oh. And I think if there's anyone who is likely to to match Thomas Jefferson in ingenuity, or probably exceed Thomas Jefferson in ingenuity and, and interest, it's, it's uh, Ben Franklin. Absolutely. So. Well, why would you say it's important for people to understand the early history and the stages of development of our country, that time period that's drawn you so much? Well, I think we sometimes think that our, our current time of divisiveness and political separation is something that we invented. But in reality, there was a period, especially from about 1797 till 1805, where it was every bit as vicious and divisive as it is today. And I mentioned this to someone at a, at a party a couple of days ago, and she said, well, they didn't have cable news. But what they did have is they had newspapers and they had pamphlets which were funded by and, and controlled by the two main factions, the, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. And some of the attacks on people were just unbelievable. I mean, so, you know, Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is a period which rhymes with that period uh, of, of American history where the, between the Federalists and the, and the Democratic Republicans, they were absolutely at each other's throats all the time. So It's interesting you'd say that because I remember going to a museum at the Woodstock concert site. It had mm -hmm. been built there to talk about those times prior to the Woodstock concert in mm -hmm. the early 60s, the late 50s, and then on after. And I had actually forgotten how much was going on in the assassinations, the riots, and, and all of the things. And, and I found it very affirming because it's frightening to see all the different factions, I think, today and the the angst that goes along with it. So it's nice to know it happened before and we all survived it and perhaps are stronger for it or better for Came it. Came out on the other side. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's good to know. So as an expert on Thomas Jefferson, what are some of the most important things that he did and how does that impact us today? Well, first of all, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I'm just an interested student. You're pretty close. Well, I guess the thing that he is most remembered for, well, he on his own tombstone, he wrote what would be on his tombstone. And he said, Thomas Jefferson, he was the author of the Declaration of Independence, the author of the Statute of Religious Freedom in Virginia, and founder of the University of Virginia. Now, 
I have read some people speculate that that sort of demonstrated his passive-aggressive personality because it says nothing about being president of the United States. And why was that, do you think? He wanted people to say, oh, but he was also president (laughs) of the United States. (laughs) So that's what they said. I think he is most remembered for the words he penned in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. Frankly, those words, I think, have been misconstrued because he he did not think all men were created equal, but it was part of a logical sequence sort of based on the Enlightenment scholars in Scotland and and John Locke, that there was a sequence as to how people go from a state of nature where all men are created equal, in theory, and they form a government to protect themselves. And that government, if it protects them, it's, it's okay. But if it ceases to protect them, then the people have the right to overthrow the government or separate from that government. He was very much influenced by the Saxons who came over from Saxony in France. And he pointed out that the Saxons were never controlled by the Saxony, the people in Saxony, and that that was the proper way of, of going about it. So he used the phrase, all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, John Locke said property, and the pursuit of happiness, though John Locke also was the one who came up with the phrase pursuit of happiness. So it's very much of a Lockean concept. And I, I think it's been, George Wilk says that those words of all men created equal is the catechism of America. John Meacham says they're the the most important words ever written in the English language. And uh, Abraham Lincoln said that that was the founding proposition of the the country. So I guess I'm not going to dispute that with them. I mean, you know, it certainly has taken on an important and valuable meaning, but that wasn't what he really intended. But that's, be that as it may, it's, it's probably the most important thing he did. Actually, the most important act he did in terms of American history, is the Louisiana Purchase because it doubled the size of the country. It gave the United States total access to the Mississippi River without Spanish or French restrictions. And I've read at least one author who says that navigable waters in the United States are the primary reason why the United States became a superpower. In fact, the name of the book is Accidental Superpower, that that and deep harbors were the things that no other country can match. So that, I think, is probably his most important contribution to the United States. Well, that certainly had an effect to us out here in Texas. That's I true. think it, it got Spain's attention and Mexico's attention sure with the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, It's very interesting. Why do you think he was chosen of all the patriots to have this part that he did in writing the Declaration of Independence? Well, in 1775, after Lexington and Concord, he wrote a pamphlet called Rights of British America, which was a petition, a very polite petition to King George III to back off, essentially. And there's a lot in there that's similar to what's in the Declaration of Independence, But the Declaration of Independence is much less charitable to the king. In the rights of British America, he essentially pinned it all on Parliament. The king was not 
at fault. They were good Englishmen, and the king should reign in Parliament. That pamphlet before the Continental Congress met circulated throughout the, the colonies, and he was something of a celebrity at the time the Declaration of Independence was written, and he was chosen to be on, on the committee. He would have much rather been in Virginia, where they were writing the state constitution. Oh, he would have rather have had part of that. Than because the... he regarded Virginia as his country. I mean, much like Robert E. Lee. I mean, he re regarded that as his country versus the United States or the colonies, uh, the freed colonies. It wasn't really a country at that point. It was a series of 13 independent colonies. You've mentioned several publications, and it makes me think that to do studies like you're doing, you must find it's a bit of a rabbit hole. You study one thing, and then I'm sure that leads you to other people or other times or other writings, and it must just go on and on. Yes, it does. It's almost endless. Uh, Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, it is. It is. You know. <laughs> and to have the time to do it is wonderful. And too. you share it. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing yeah. it. Really appreciate that. Well, what challenges, and I guess, I mean, the obvious, the challenges that Thomas Jefferson faced, but are there some that we don't commonly know about, some challenges that Thomas Jefferson faced? Um, he had a personal challenge. He was extremely in love with his wife, and they had, I think, five or six children, three of whom survived her death. And he said it was the happiest 10 years of his, his life. I mean, he was very dedicated to her. On her deathbed, she began writing a well-known poem, and she ran out of energy, and he finished the poem in his own handwriting, and he, he kept that poem in his bedside for the rest of his life. Wow. So when she died, he was absolutely devastated and was completely incapacitated for several weeks. And that was when he decided he would go to France. He had been asked to go to France before by the Continental Confederation Congress, but he didn't want to, but he finally decided to, to go after that. And that's when he took Sally Hemings with him, right? Actually, Sally came later. Okay. Uh, he, was, he was there for a couple of years. He took his older daughter there and they lived in Paris. Uh, in fact, if you go there, there is on the Champs Elysees, there is a plaque that says Thomas Jefferson lived here. Put his older daughter in an abbey across the Seine from where he lived. While he was there, he got a, a letter that the his wife had died shortly after childbirth. Their third child, Lucy, he had three daughters, and Lucy died of whooping cough. Oh, that's sad. And he got this letter saying that she had died, and he had left his second daughter with their aunt, and he decided he wanted to bring her back to France with him. He, he, was, he was very fearful of her, but she was only about 12 years old, I think. And he asked that she be accompanied by one of the enslaved women, and he recommended one of the women, but he said it was important that she be inoculated from smallpox, because that was something that was a scourge of the country. The woman that he selected became pregnant and couldn't travel, so his sister-in-law substituted Sally Hemings, who was 14, to accompany his, his younger daughter with him to France. And they first stopped off in England, 
and stayed with uh, Abigail and John Adams in London. Thomas Jefferson just could not find time to come and get her, so they finally sent her over with Sally Hemings, and that's how Sally Hemings got to France. Well, he had a sad family life, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, one of the things, when his wife died on her deathbed, she made him pledge that he would never remarry. Oh, dear. Well, she had had, uh, she'd had two stepmothers. Her mother had died after her birth, and she had had two stepmothers. And I, you know, I've never seen this proven, but I think she would, did not want her daughters being raised by stepmothers. She must have had some bad experiences. She must have had some bad experience. Yeah. And so uh, he never married, but he clearly had a pretty strong libido because he had a number of almost affairs or maybe affairs. We don't know, but he never he never married. Usually when he had a, had a close relationship with a, with a woman, it would be a married woman. How old was he when his wife died? Do you know? Uh, about 35, I think. Oh, he was so young yeah. to be saddled with a promise like that. But he kept the promise. He never remarried. That's very interesting. It sort of puts some things in perspective, yeah. I would say. Yeah. And he was such a brilliant man. He was such a Renaissance man. He right. had so many interests and uh, I, I know whenever I go to Monticello, I'm always amazed at how creative his mind was and mm -hmm. all the inventions that he mm -hmm. had there. Yeah, yeah, he had a number of inventions and a num number of contributions to American life, uh, not the least of which were French fries and mac and cheese, <laughs> both of which he brought from France. In fact, there is a, a uh, cookbook. Sally Hemings brother, James, had gone over with Jefferson when he initially went. And Jefferson seconded him to a chef in a French kitchen. And he learned from the chef, he learned how to, to uh, cook French food. And there's actually a book of the recipes that they brought back. Oh, I have to find that. From uh, France. So he brought those things to us. He had uh, patents on plows and, and on uh, mobile thrashing machines for wheat. He, in addition to the, the, if you've been to Monticello, the spinning music table or, or reading table, he also came up with something that he called a polygraph, which is not like the polygraphs we think of. It was a mechanism where he could write with one hand and on another piece of paper would be writing the same things. I mean, it would be, it would be copying what he was writing in his handwriting. Uh, which was quite a development because quite at that a time, development. it was the first copying machine. Before that, the only way you could preserve a copy of, of what you'd written someone is to either recopy it out in hand, or there was a very elaborate procedure for copying it in, in reverse. The, the, the image would be in reverse with a special ink. So he came up with that idea. So he he did a lot of very interesting things. I think the one that was, I think, is most interesting was while he was in France, he learned of an English doctor who had come up with a theory that milkmaids had very good, beautiful complexion, no pock marks of any kind. And the doctor speculated it was because they had developed cowpox which is a very diluted version of smallpox. I mean, it's, it's similar to smallpox, but it's very much less severe. And at that point in time, uh, you know, smallpox was more of a concern than COVID is for us today. I mean, it was, it was absolutely COVID squared. 
the fact that they did not develop smallpox, he concluded, was because they had had cowpox. And so this doctor developed a vaccine using active elements of, of a cowpox uh, infection, and it, it seemed to work. And so Jefferson brought that back and inoculated his entire slave population with this vaccine. It was the first time the vaccine had ever been used. In fact, the word vaccine comes from vexunus, which is Latin for of a cow. Oh, my goodness. So that's where that came from. And, and then they had problems with it spoiling, if you will, on the boat as, they, as it became popular here in, in America. And he, and he came up with the idea of suspending it in bottles in water, and that preserved it. So, you know, he was a very creative, inventive kind of guy. I wondered when you were mentioning about him going to France and he insisted that whoever accompanied his daughter had been inoculated. And I thought, well, that seems awfully early for the smallpox vaccine, but he, not so with his interest in no, this doctor's research. In fact, his first trip out of Virginia was north to, to get vaccinated for smallpox himself. When was the general public? inoculated. Was it much later? Probably in the early 1800s. Yeah, that's uh, incredible. There's a great scene in uh, the HBO uh, series about John Adams uh -huh. that shows how awful it was to get vaccinated because before, before they had the cowpox vaccine, they would actually take people who were infected out into the field and take live cultures from their infected pus. Uh. And and cut people's arms and put that in there. And it's, there's a just a wonderful scene where Abigail Adams is having her children vaccinated. And one of the the problems was that a high percentage of those people actually got actually the smallpox and died. Yeah, so. yeah. Wow, that's interesting. We could talk about that all on in and of yeah. itself. Yeah. That's really incredible. What factors do you think in Thomas Jefferson's life caused him to be such a Renaissance man? Do you think it was just uh, the time, that time of, of the age of America where, or the world where people had various interests? Or do you think there was something from his life? Well, I think you can almost trace it directly to his college education. Uh, his family had a lot of books at, at his family home in Shadwell, which later burned. Uh, and we lost all the papers that he had. Oh, that, what a shame! He was in his early law practice, but when when he was at, went to William and Mary, his first year he was like a lot of first year college students. He played the parties <laughs> game, and and he he was not a very good student. And then he became very very serious, and somehow, and I don't know how this happened, he ended up in a group of four who met for dinner several times a week that included the royal governor, George Wythe, who was the leading professor of law in Virginia, and then a third gentleman who was a Scottish philosophy professor. And they were all, all of them interested in music, and they had conversations, and it was a very uh, genteel thing, but it got him very interested in, in studying. And apparently from after his first year of school, he was like the hardest working student in the, in the college. I mean, he would study for 15 hours a day. Sounds like he was fortunate enough to have some great mentorship. Right. That's wonderful. Now, with the popularity of the Broadway show about Hamilton, mm -hmm. people are becoming much more informed about Hamilton and his contributions in America. 
How would you describe the difference between Hamilton's vision for the country and Jefferson's? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Jefferson was in France till 1789. When he came back, while he was on the, the, the ship, George Washington named him Secretary of State for the first administration. And he was unaware of it and tried to get out of it, but he wasn't successful because George Washington could be a pretty persuasive <laughs> person. There were only four cabinet members. There was the Secretary of War, which was Henry Knox, who had been one of Washington's main military aides, Attorney General, uh, who was Edmund Randolph, and then Jefferson as Secretary of State and Hamilton as Secretary of Treasury. I, I'm not sure that Hamilton and Jefferson had ever even met before then. Jefferson was at, of course, the Continental Congress when the Declaration of Independence was done, but Alexander Hamilton was not. Alexander Hamilton was at the Continental Congress that, that wrote the Constitution, and Jefferson was not. Uh, Hamilton had served in the Confederation Congress, and Jefferson, again, was in France. So I'm not sure that they knew each other. They probably knew of each other. They're, the one contact, I, indirect contact I've, I've seen is that Jefferson knew uh, Hamilton's sister-in-law, Angelica Church, when he was in France, because her husband was, was in France. Beyond that, I don't think they had ever met. So here are two guys going into a new administration, a new government, uh, with titles that no one quite knew where the meets and bounds of those jobs were. You know, was, for example, were patents and trademark a secretary of state job or were that, was that a treasury job? And secretary of state was not, as it is today, focused on foreign affairs necessarily, though I'm sure that's why Washington chose Jefferson. It wasn't clear exactly what that was. It, and so they probably started out with a little friendly competition, you know, sort of trying to decide who had what power and who didn't. There is evidence that they worked together reasonably well. The story is that uh, Alexander Hamilton wanted the National Bank. Uh, James Madison, who was Jefferson's protege, who was a leader of the House of Representatives, did not want the National Bank but wanted the capital to be located in the South or in the middle of the country at least. And the story is that he, broke, he, Jefferson, brokered a compromise between the two of them where Madison would not oppose the National Bank if Hamilton would not oppose the location of the national capital city in the South, where, where it ended up between Maryland and Virginia. They came from different backgrounds, entirely different backgrounds. Hamilton came from an urban mercantile background. And he looked at the United States through that prism. He thought that the United States should be a, a mercantile, urbanizing country. Jefferson came from a rural background, even though he was fairly wealthy. He came from a background where it was more of a small government republic. The notion, the generally accepted notion at that time was that republics could not exist in large areas, that, that republic had to be a, like a city-state or a small area. And Jefferson did not believe that the country would survive with a strong centralized government. Hamilton disagreed with that. He was very much in favor of a strong centralized government. Hamilton was probably very much influenced by the fact that he had, had fought in the uh, Revolutionary War as an aide to George Washington and had seen what could come of a very weak central government. The story was that when uh, the messenger arrived from Yorktown to tell the 
the Confederation Congress that George Washington had won at Yorktown, that they had to take up a collection to pay him because the central treasury didn't have money to pay him for his time. and Couldn't you know, even you know. give him a tip. Right. So, <laughs> wow. So, so I think that's, that's sort of the where, where they, that's sort of the basis of where they differed. Yeah, I can understand. I mean, there had to have been so many different ideas, and all of them probably had elements of good and elements mm -hmm. of bad. And it's an amazing thing that everything came together, actually, the way it, it did oh, to it have is. worked so well is it pretty is. phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, that's why the Constitution is, is really just a series of compromises. I mean, some people like to think of the Constitution as something that the angel Gabriel <laughs> delivered to George Washington, uh, but in, divine it, intervention, yeah, divine inter and, and, and they some of when they were trying to get you know the ratification of the Constitution, some people actually made that argument that this was this was divinely inspired. Uh, it was really a series of very very deep differences being resolved through compromise. Well, that in itself, I think, is a good lesson for people today to know that this wonderful document that we talk about and we refer to so often came about from such a variety of different opinions and a variety of different people coming from all sorts of backgrounds that varied, and yet they compromised. And they came up with something that's been very strong yeah. throughout all these years. I think there's Remarkable a big lesson so. in that. Now, you have taught courses on the Articles of Confederation mm -hmm. and the lead up, the transition up to the U.S. Constitution. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the Articles of Confederation, why they were important and why this transition was important? And what drew you to this? I was drawn by looking further, reading about Hamilton and Washington and Adams. The Articles of Confederation uh, had some interesting clauses. One is every state had one vote. They didn't specify how many representatives or delegates each state could present because it didn't matter. They only had one vote. So it was very much a state-oriented sort of government. Many items, in fact, most items required unanimous agreement, which proved to be virtually impossible. In most cases, there's some things that could be decided by a vote of nine of the of the thirteen, but that's still a pretty high bar. What happened in the period after the revolution and during the time that the Articles of Confederation were in effect was, first of all, there was no regulation. You know, the Congress was very weak; it, it couldn't tax. It had no taxing authority. Uh, it couldn't raise an army. It could not regulate commerce between the the states. And so, for example, items would come into New York Harbor and would be destined for Connecticut or New Jersey, and New York would impose a, a levy on it, a, a tariff on it. New York did very, very well in the uh, Articles of Confederation. The states around it did very, very poorly. So that was a big problem. There was hyperinflation following the, the Revolutionary War. England had sort of cut off the supply of specie or hard currency. So the, the states, a lot of the states would print their own money. And that money would be, you know, essentially worthless. You know, it would devalue just almost immediately. In the Treaty of Paris, there was a provision saying that that was, that was the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War, that the United States would recognize the debts owed to British creditors and would restore British 
property rights for, for people who had, had property taken by the colonies. And the local state courts simply would not enforce that commitment by the United States in the treaty. As a result, the British refused to vacate the forts on the western frontier of the country or in, in the Allegheny Mountains. Something that came up sort of at the time that they were trying to, you know, thinking about, boy, we have to do something. And Madison and George Washington were really key to that. There was something called the Shays Rebellion, where farmers were being foreclosed by the courts in Massachusetts. So the remedy that they had, and this, this again, is where history rhymes. <laughs> they surrounded the courthouses so that the uh, courts could not meet to foreclose. And they tried to raid the uh, arsenal in Springfield, Massachusetts. And the Continental Congress couldn't raise an army. So there's actually some Boston merchants who financed the defense of the uh, Springfield arsenal. As a result, it was, it was pretty clear that, that changes had to be made. And again, Madison was sort of at the lead of getting this, this all done. And they initially had a conference that only about four or five of the states attended in Annapolis. That's where they called for a constitutional convention. And the Constitutional Convention, they were supposed to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Well, of course, Madison wanted to rewrite the whole thing. And so that's what they ended up doing, is rewriting the whole thing. Sounds like it was a good plan to rewrite the whole thing, oh, because yeah. it was definitely not very yeah. effective for yeah. our country. And we probably wouldn't have maintained the history that we have. No, we, we wouldn't have. We probably wouldn't have developed. We would have developed into either several different super states you yeah. know, or, or have come apart entirely or been taken over by, by foreign nationals. Oh, yeah. well, that's fascinating. Well, I attended your class on Marbury versus mm -hmm. Madison and love not only your terrific sense of humor, you have a great sense of humor while you teach, you keep it very interesting. And the way that you wound the facts together so that they came out at the end, but just this whole interweaving of facts and ideas. And it, it was really terrific. I enjoyed it very much. And I hope that we see you very often here at OLLI, keeping us informed about things that matter to us as Americans, making us better citizens because more informed people are always better citizens and making us all the smarter for it. So I thank you so much for well, your contribution. You're welcome and I enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Jim Bays. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast.